Hello and welcome to the Devon Wildlife Warden podcast hosted by me, Emily Marbay. In this episode, I'll bring you the latest updates from our wildlife wardens and find out what conservation work they've been up to. I'll also be talking to Gary, a local resident, about bees and beekeeping, as well as looking at what you can do at home or in your area to support our wildlife. But first of all, I wanted to take a moment to talk briefly about the Wildlife Warden scheme I'm involved with and how these grassroots initiatives are spreading across the country. If you listened to episode one, I gave a fair bit of detail about the Teambridge Wildlife Warden scheme and how I got involved. The idea is to have a wildlife warden in each parish taking on local ecology and conservation projects. We're still looking for wardens in a range of parishes, so if you're interested, why not get in touch? The details are in the episode notes. Now, what I've noticed since getting involved as a wildlife warden is just how many conservation schemes there are, from large charity-run efforts to small local schemes like this one. But what we need to do is spread the word about them and get more of our local communities engaged, and that's where I hope this podcast can do something to help. I'm certainly not the only wildlife warden in Teambridge, and I want to give a huge shout out to all the guys who are working hard on various projects. I'll be bringing you some updates from them in a bit. On the grassroots front, I thought it would be interesting to share an article I read recently about local environmental campaigns. In the piece, which was in The Guardian on the 4th of April, they asked the question, how many local environment campaigns does it take for the issues they raise to be recognised as part of a national problem? 10? 20 maybe. What about a 100? The article goes on to explain that In the space of just two weeks since its launch, a national grassroots campaign map has had more than 280 different groups register their own local campaigns, many focused on large and unsustainable planning applications. Rosie Pearson, one of the founders, was quoted saying, When we set it up, it was really just to see what was out there. We quickly realised there's a real hunger for sharing information, resources and support we're witnessing a huge number of local groups facing the same issues. And many of these issues stem from the government's build, build, build mantra and developers with huge resources facing down small local groups who are trying to protect their local wildlife. Now, although there is an issue of underreporting of these initiatives, it does warm my heart to know that they are happening. So if you're involved in a grassroots campaign, why not get it logged on the map? I'll include a link in the episode notes. Perhaps by bringing all the small campaigns happening across the country together, we can help the powers that be to recognise that there is growing public support for such issues and get them to take more notice. We can hope. Moving on, before bringing you some updates from our wildlife wardens, I would like to take a moment to speak about one of our own nature reserves in Teambridge. In the last episode, I spoke briefly about Dawlish and its warren, and about Allerbrook Nature Reserve. I may come back to these in greater detail in a later episode, but for today I want to talk about Walborough Fen. Walborough Fen is a special urban oasis, nestled among the parkland and green space of Decoy Country Park, just a short walk from Newton Abbott Town Centre. A circular path leads around a wet woodland of willow, birch, oak and ash, edged with thicker cover of bramble and bracken. Amongst the trees and scrub, look out for over 30 species of bird foraging for insects and seeds. At the centre of the reserve is a wet fen, 
formed by a raised dome of peat nearly three metres thick, which was gradually built up over two and a half thousand years. Around this, the watery landscape is completed by a range of ditches, pools, springs and streams. Together, these support a good range of wetland animals and plants, including dragonflies and wildflowers. Now, the delicate fen is sensitive to trampling, so there is no open access to the heart of the reserve, but from the paths you can see water mint and the pinky sprays of hemp agrimony. Some 176 plant species have been recorded there. These include common reed and greater tussock sedge, as well as the rare saw sedge. In fact, this is the only place in Devon that you'll see saw sedge. These grasses sway above a rich variety of ferns, liverworts and sphagnum moss. Surrounding the fen is a wet woodland which provides home to, to rare fungi, hoverflies and craneflies. Frogs, toads and newts thrive in these conditions, while the reserve is also home to 25 butterfly species and more than 80 species of moth. Walbra Fen offers something wildly different, tucked away only a short distance from one of Devon's busiest towns. So if you've never been for a visit, perhaps you can add it to your bucket list for this summer. Now let's have a look at some of the latest updates from other wildlife wardens in the district. One of the spaces some of our wardens are focusing on is churchyards. They are often a haven for wildlife and a great place to focus conservation efforts. In one of our neighbouring counties, Somerset, there is a fantastic initiative called Wilder Churches. This scheme is a new partnership initiative between Somerset Wildlife Trust and the Diocese of Bath and Wells, and that's supporting communities to get to know the wildlife in their local churchyard and work together to find ways to increase the value of these special places for wildlife. Our wildlife wardens have been adopting this premise in some of our local parishes here. For example, in Chagford, a beautiful sign at St Michael the Archangel Church sums it up beautifully. It reads, In the last 80 years, Britain has lost 97% of its wildflower meadows. Species that depend on them have disappeared from the countryside. Rural churchyards, such as ours, are repositories of these lost meadows. In St Michael's Churchyard, we're doing our bit to change things for the better. By allowing some of the areas richest in wildflowers to bloom and seed, we are providing sources of nectar for many insects, including bees, butterflies and moths, which are in serious decline. Many of these, and other insects in turn, provide food for birds and mammals from the swallows that dodge between the gravestones during the summer to the secretive fertilings of hedgehogs. These and many more find sanctuary here, away from the hustle and bustle of modern life, and the ever-increasing threats of urbanisation. We hope that you may find sanctuary here too. Now, I'm sure you'll agree that this is a lovely sign to have in the churchyard to remind people of why letting the wildflowers grow is so, so important. Nikki, one of our wardens in Chagford, reported that it's been hard to get local engagement with the wilder church idea there. Many people still prefer a churchyard that looks neat and tidy, over one that might look a bit messier to the naked eye, but in fact provides a far richer haven for wildlife. Her advice is that if you, that you need a good plan and should possibly not aim to tackle the whole churchyard at once. 
Over in Tynmouth, Neil, one of our wardens there, has been involved in surveying species in Tynmouth Old Cemetery. He has been curating a blog which documents a rich variety of species there, which is great to see despite housing developments springing up on all sides, which makes it even more important as a local conservation area. I'll put a link to Neil's blog in the episode notes if you'd like to learn a bit more. Kate, over in Yalpton, is also working with her local church and has asked about getting some swift boxes installed there. Being a public building, there will be health and safety concerns to take into consideration, but it will be a project well worth doing for these lovely birds. And to finish up the conversation about wilder churchyards, the organisation Caring for God's Acre is well worth checking out if you'd like to learn more. Kate, another wildlife warden, has let us know that their action pack is an invaluable resource, so I'll also include a link to that. Now, it did get me thinking about my local church and how we might get them involved. I wonder if the families and friends of deceased loved ones might consider planting miniature memorial wildflower meadows on grave sites. I'm not really sure who to speak to about this to get the idea off the ground, so I will definitely be looking at some of these resources in greater depth myself. In Bishop Stainton, Sarah has been organising a wildflower and seed distribution project in collaboration with Sustainable Bishop Stainton. Now, she planted 150 plants and will give them away with information sheets starting this Sunday, the 18th of April, from 2 to 4 at the Lawns in Bishop. These include interesting facts and folklore. One tale is that Red Campion guards the bees' honey and also shields hiding fairies from discovery. It is certainly an important ally of bees and other pollinators, so who knows, there may be some truth in this. Over in Broadhampton, wildlife wardens in the village were successful in an application for 400 saplings from the Woodland Trust, and they've also been given permission by a local landowner to plant a hedge. During the end of February, the group set up toad patrols throughout the village, and one night they helped 44 toads. Those guys have certainly been very busy. In Dawlish, wildlife wardens created a wildflower ID poster to be distributed through the parish, and they also carried out a biodiversity audit of a site for Dawlish Climate Declaration Working Group. In Ken, wildlife wardens are managing a community meadow, and they've completed winter management. They are soon to take delivery of a number of benches so that the local community can sit and enjoy the wildlife. In Ogwell, the Ogwell team have seeded several new wildflower strips and they're continuing to plant verges with species that are beneficial for wildlife. They've also set up a seed swap in the old village outside the toilet block next to the pub and this allows villagers to contribute seeds or take some and currently there are more seeds available than they started with. So that certainly shows fantastic community spirit and engagement with the project. And now on to bees. And I'd like to start this part of the podcast with a joke. What do you call a bee you can't understand? A mumblebee. I hope you enjoyed that. Now, how about some more useful information about bees? In fact, we have around 267 species of the insect in the UK. These include one species of honeybee and 25 bumblebee species. The rest, around 90% of our bees, are in in fact solitary bees. 
I'd like to draw attention to a species of bee which is of particular importance in Devon, and this is the six-banded nomad bee. This is a critically endangered and nationally rare type of bee. It is only known to exist on the coastline near Prawl Point in Devon. Formerly, it was widely distributed in southern Britain. At Prawl, the population is critically low. The species is at risk of extinction in Devon and hence the British Isles. In fact, only a single individual was found in 2019. It is considered to be the UK's most endangered bee and is a cuckoo bee. Like the famous bird, they lay their eggs in other bees' nests. When the nomad's larva hatches, it eats the pollen stores that the host bee gathered for its own young. The six-banded nomad bee's choice of host is the long-horned bee. The host is threatened itself, since it only feeds on a few wildflowers in the legume or pea family, such as everlasting pea and kidney vetch. Now, the nomad bee's lifestyle may seem to harm its host, but the relationship is not one-sided. The two species have evolved together over millions of years. Longhorned bees can cope with the nomads, but the nomads need strong host numbers to survive. The longhorned bees haven't disappeared from the nomads' former range, but the loss of the nomad indicates that they have declined, providing an early warning sign that help is needed. Bug Life are investing more in surveys and monitoring of the six-banded nomad bee and will be producing a species recovery plan. Both species are part of Life on the Edge, which is a South Devon area of natural beauty and Bug Life partnership project to conserve key invertebrates along the South Devon coast. Once a species recovery plan is in place, we may be in a position to suggest things you can do to help these cheeky bees who like other people, well, other bees, to hatch its eggs and feed its babies. Don't know why I never thought of that. Bees provide an important service, as we know. They pollinate our crops, allowing us to grow plants like tomatoes, blueberries, strawberries and green beans. But over the last 80 years, we have seen a dramatic decline in their numbers due to habitat loss, overuse of pesticides and disease. And this is where you come in. Our private gardens and public spaces have never been, sorry, couldn't help myself, more important as a support network for bees. And Gary's garden is better than most. He is a local Abbots Kurzweil resident and beekeeper. You may have seen his articles in Abtalk, our local parish magazine, and he's kindly agreed to speak to me about his interest in bees. To keep things COVID safe, we had a lovely chat in my garden, so please excuse the sound quality of what follows, although you may enjoy the bird song in the background. Hello, Gary. Thank you for agreeing to speak to us about bees. Um, I'd like to just start off by asking you, how do you got into it? Like, what interests you about bees? Hi, in Emily. Thank you very much for having me. Um, my love of bees probably started about four years ago. Um, I, you know my garden and I have lots of fruit trees there. Mm -hmm. I wasn't getting a very good crop of fruit and um, a colleague of mine, uh, cider maker, uh, was is also a beekeeper, introduced me to the Cockington Apri, uh, which is run by Torbay Beekeepers. I went down to see them and started looking at bees and 
one thing led to another, and I've got four beehives now. Fantastic. Uh, they are absolutely fascinating. Not uh, not one day, not one inspection of the, the hive is the same as the other. So there's uh, lots of things to know about the bees. Amazing. And what, so is there a particular type of bee? I, I suppose it would have to be a honeybee that you keep. So, yes, the bees I keep um, is one, one species of, the, of a honeybee. There are five common species. And there's a carnelian, a Caucasian, the Russian bee, uh, the buckfast one, which is very local to us, and there is the one that I can't recall. Never mind. <laughs> I'm sure I'll come back to you later. It's not a problem. Um, so my bees are probably uh, a buckfast uh, from the buckfast origin, but to be honest, I'm not entirely sure because. Uh, the nature of, of honeybees and the way that they they mate and cross uh, crossbreed, I couldn't be sure. But mine are sort of a Mongol breed. But you know what? They are South Devon bees, and they they fit the the environment that we've got down here. Wonderful. Um, and I mean, I would assume that what you're doing is useful for local conservation. Would, is it something that you would agree with? or I think so, yes, absolutely. Now, obviously, we, not every person, not every house could have uh, a colony of bees, and there's lots of other pollinators out there, but we know um, very well the, the impact of loss of pollinators. Um, I think 70% of the world crops are... Uh, rely on pollinators and not just honeybees, uh, fortunately. Um, but uh, yeah, I couldn't say that all the all the flowers within Abbot's Cows were pollinated by my bees and certainly there isn't enough to go around. But um, I know that, uh, I think, I'm pretty sure that my crops of, of fruit have uh, have increased since I've had the bees there. So hopefully they get far wide amongst the village and, uh, and people will see the bees around each of their gardens. I'm sure that we've had plenty of your bees visiting our gardens here and actually one of the things I want to do in our little clearing in the woods is turn it into a better wildflower meadow um, and so we may well attract more of your bees down there. I'd certainly hope so, the more, more flowers that they can get to visit the more honey that they can produce. So um, I'd encourage everybody to, to just think about the environment, plants, uh, flowers and, and trees, actually bees do like trees as well. Um, but to plant more and not to cut the lawns quite so much, let the dandelions come up. You can always get rid of the seed heads just before they, they spread, but let the flowers just grow. The bees love a dandelion. And they're nice early season plants as well, when Absolutely. there's not that much else around. Absolutely. It gets a bit cold this time of year. We're, we're still in the middle of a, a cold snap, so the bees aren't flying. It's only, they, they'll only fly when it's about 12 degrees. Ah. Um, but as soon as the sun hits the hive and they can warm up their flight muscles then they'll be on the wing wonderful so i mean if somebody was interested in starting their own hive what kind of advice would you give so the beekeeping can be seen as a bit of a middle england hobby there it could be seen to be expensive it doesn't have to be expensive at all and you know what anybody can take part there are two local clubs to us here. One is the Torbay Beekeepers Association, which has its its home apiary at Cockington, uh, just down near the Drum Pub. Mm -hmm. 
and the, the other one is Newton Abbott Beekeepers Association and they have their apiary based at uh, Clay Lane. Uh, both these, these clubs are willing to accept people to, to come in and visit, to talk about bees and they'll actually take part, they'll let you take part in the practical sessions as well. So you don't need to, to spend that money on your own hive. You can go and help out there, see if you like it, because mm-hmm. it's not it's not going to be for everybody. When you have a, lots of bees flying about your head, they're <laughs> pinging off your off your veil, off your suit. It can be a bit disturbing, but you'll get to find out if you like it or not. But yeah, uh, yeah I suggest to anybody who's interested, um, you know, they can contact me, for example, and they can come and they can they can. Covid regulations permitting, obviously, they can uh, look over my shoulder and, and we'll go through some of my hives. But other than that, go and visit the local club and uh, see what they say. Now, I didn't sort of uh, mention this in our preparation for meeting today, but I did notice that you have put some hives around the village as well. So, what, how did that come about, and why are we putting hives now? In places other than your garden so my garden uh, i did originally have well i started with one hive and <laughs> lucky enough i managed to propagate them effectively and and one has turned into four um there's plenty to plenty of forage around for the bees here in in stony hill but somebody in uh, the priory contacted me they knew i kept bees um contacted me and said that they were interested in, in having a couple of hives up there so i paid them a visit made sure it was correct for them not everywhere you can have a hive you just need to be careful about the closest to um, to children to animals um and yeah you just need consideration for your neighbors but the the outlook they provided up there is fantastic it the the site where the two hives are overlooks a valley and to the right you've got Abbots Kurzweil with all the lovely wonderful gardens there and to the left is King's Kurzweil uh, and again they've got lots of lovely flowers and gardens over there I used to live there so I know exactly what it's like I noticed yesterday that all the wildflowers springing up all over King's Kurzweil churchyard it looks absolutely stunning down there it's, at the moment it is lovely so there's there's lots going on but the the outlook over at, at the priory was was fine absolutely fine they're not involved not in the way of of any of the residents up there so um i thought let's um let's spread them out a bit a little bit amazing that's fantastic news and um and really helpful for the local plants and things as you say now i think we can leave it there um now gary is going to do some follow-up pieces in ab talk magazine coming up i don't know if you want to give us a sneak preview of of what what you'll be talking about in the issues coming so my i'm i'm really pleased to to be sharing any bee news and La- I was asked if I would do an article for the last app talk, which which we did. Hopefully, you've all read that and and got some pleasure from it. Um, I am hoping to do one every month now during the summer. Obviously, beekeeping is is a sort of a summer hobby. Um, we have to open up the bees and, and have a look at them, weather permitting, um, every week. If it's stormy, or if it's too cold, we don't do it. It's like you can use the example that if if somebody was looking into your house they'd have to lift the roof off to look inside and see how you were and obviously it can be quite off-putting so we've got to choose the moments where we do inspect the the bees um i'm hoping to give an update every month on how the 
each of the hives are progressing and also to give an insight into beekeeping I don't want to bore people with the facts there are tons and tons of facts and every time we look at the bees they do something different and something unexpected so it's one of these fabulous hobbies that I just want to share with everybody so stay tuned and read the monthly updates in Abtalk. That sounds like a, quite the soap opera for, for bees <laughs> and people interested in bees coming up. Thank you ever so much for your time today, Gary, and we look forward to reading all about it in future issues. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that and huge thanks again to Gary for taking the time to speak to me. Now, other than uh, planting wildflowers and supporting bees, what else can you do to help local conservation efforts at this time of year? Well, one of the things you could do is get involved with a citizen science project. There are many of these going on, but one which our wildlife wardens are more actively involved with is the West Country CSI project. West Country CSI is a growing community of citizen scientists taking a closer look at our local rivers across Somerset, Dorset, Devon and Cornwall. Their aims are to record as many surveys as they can from across the region, literally putting the lesser-known West Country rivers on the map, to use the data to flag up persistent, low-level pollution problems or areas where habitat can be improved, and this will help to develop future projects and volunteer events, and to give people or volunteer groups an easy way of recording the health of their local river or stream, including good things like wildlife sightings, as well as bad like pollution, litter and invasive plants. When you first sign up, you'll start by taking observational surveys using the West Country CSI form. You'll be able to record information on plants, wildlife, river condition and any visible pollution. As long as you record a time and location, you can fill in as much or little of the form as you like, so you don't need to be a trained ecologist to get involved and contribute to the project. I'll put a link in the episode notes if you'd like to get involved. If that sounds too complicated or time-consuming for your personal situation, don't worry, you can still do something to help your local wildlife. How about something as simple as signing a petition or attending an online event? I recently sat in on a free talk about house martins with ecologist John Walters. It was lovely to learn about these wonderful birds, and if you'd like to hear him speak, the wonders of YouTube will allow you to do just that. I'll provide a link in the episode notes. Now, from a conservation point of view, it was interesting to note that while putting up nest boxes for these birds is useful and worth doing, what they really need is food. As migratory birds... They travel great distances and consume a lot of food. They also experience high infant mortality rates, so must raise numerous young in order to maintain their population. And this takes lots of food. House martins feed on what's known as aerial plankton, which means they snatch insects out of the air. But due to intensification of agriculture and increased use of pesticides, there just aren't as many insects flying about as there used to be, and this is causing house martin numbers to decline dramatically. So what can you do to help? It comes back to planting more wildflowers, again. It's a strategy that seems to be crucial for many species, 
So if the butterflies and bees didn't convince you to plant some, maybe the needs of the house martins will. And this leads me nicely to speak about Bug Life's new campaign, No Insect Inction. They are on a mission to save our insects and they need your help. They have a sign-up page on their website, which I'll include a link to in our episode notes, and their target is to get 5,000 people to sign up for the campaign. Once you fill in a few basic details, you will receive a free booklet and pack of wildflower seeds in the post, if you're in the UK, a series of emails to educate and inspire you, and suggestions of simple actions you can take to help insects near you. At the time of writing this episode, they had 67 people sign up, so there are plenty of spaces left for you to get in on the action and do something to support your local bugs. If you're more of a keyboard warrior and more comfortable at your desk than in your garden, there is still something you can do to help. As I mentioned a moment ago, you could have a go at signing a petition. In this episode, I would like to highlight the Call for Nature's Recovery by 2030 petition, which is currently open and which I'll include a link to. The Prime Minister has called on world leaders to turn around nature's decline by 2030, but there's no commitment in law to do the same thing here at home, which seems kind of crazy in a kind of do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do way. The Environment Bill is the last chance to set this right. By writing the recovery of nature into law, the Environment Bill could start to address the nature and climate crisis. But the current wording fails to reflect the ambition and urgency we need. This petition is calling for a change to the bill to strengthen the law. It would require the UK government to set a legally binding target to reverse the loss of nature in England by 2030, so it's really well worth taking a look at. And finally, to round off this episode... I thought I would include 30 seconds of sound from the little woods outside my office window. This recording was made in the early evening as birds were starting to wind down for the night. Enjoy. Now, that's about it for now from the Devon Wildlife Warden podcast. If you have any eco-news you'd like to share for the next episode, feel free to send it across. For now, farewell, and I hope you feel inspired to do something, however small, for your local wildlife. This podcast was narrated and produced by Emily Marbay, with music by Scott Holmes Music. <laughs>